Steve Briggs, he needs some help. Help him out. Hey, um, Steve's the parking lot attendant. My name's Weston, and um, glad that you're here if you're visiting with us. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Artisan Soul, and what this series is, just so everybody can be on the same page, it's um, exploring how to create a life that is a masterpiece with God. As humans, we're all creative people. Uh, the first week we looked at how we've been created in the image of a creating God, which means that we ourselves are creative. Whether you think about it or not, you are creating a future, you are building a life, and it's probably a good idea to try to do that intentionally. And so that's what this series is about. Last week we looked at how the power of words uh, shape us and how our words are powerful and have the capacity to shape the lives of other people. Uh, today we're going to be looking at something a little different, uh, but before we get there, I want to look at our theme verse. It's 1 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So let's say that together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. So today, I want to look at two stories, primarily in Scripture, um, that think about how we are telling a story with our life. All of our lives are telling a story. You know, I, as one of the, the roles that I have is to uh, do a funeral. And it's a difficult time, obviously, for families. And one of the questions I like to ask is, if you could boil this person's life down into one word, what would that one word be? And that is essentially the story that that person's life has told. And it's interesting to me, but the word is always different. It's always different. If you get a few people in the room, uh, they'll all center on the same kind of thing. But each person's life is a different kind of word. We're all telling a different story with our lives. We need to think about what those are. Uh, I want to look at two stories in Scripture that help us to see um, the way that we can tell uh, a story with our lives. The first one is in the book of Job. Um, I hate the book of Job. I just probably need to just lay that out there, okay? Uh, some of you uh, are offended by that. I'm sorry. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, he didn't like the book of James. He called it the straw epistle, and if he could have cut any book of the Bible out, it would have been the book of James because it didn't have enough grace for him. So me, if I got to pick one, I'd cut the book of Job out. Uh, why is that? Well, first off, like 80% of it is filled with uh, advice that's actually not godly advice. How do I know that? Because at the end of the book, God comes down and says, hey, all of this, disregard. It's terrible advice. Don't pay attention to anything these people have just said. So, I mean, I guess in one way you could say it's, it's entirely filled with uninspired, consoling garbage is what it is. And it's, it's terrible. It's antagonistic. Job's got great friends until they open their mouths. And like 80% of the book of Job has all of their just verbal like diarrhea of like their explanation for what's happening. And it's, it's terrible. I thought, you know, if you could, you've got the words of Jesus in red, you've got the other words in black, you could put like their words in like, I don't know, brown and just say, you know what, you know, disregard, disregard this part. But, but it's, it's terrible because when people are suffering, they're like, you know what you should do? You should read the book of Job. If you're going through a hard time right now, I want to tell you, um, you should not read the book of Job. Don't open it. Don't, don't look at it. Just disregard. It's not there. Just pretend like it's not there. Okay? The book of Job is, it's a mess. So anyways, let's, now that I've said that, I want to get into some of this here. Job's friends come to him 
and they start to blame Job for all of his problems. Now, we don't have time to get into all that happens. There's this divine cosmic council. Satan shows up. God gives him some permission to test Job. And, and I, it just we could spend a year unpacking all of that. But what I want to focus on here is this friend piece. Because we are all going to go through things in life, and we rarely seldom know why. You know, I, that's just reality. We'd love to know why. We just don't. Um, and so you've got this kind of advice from the book of Job. For those of you that are still not sure, uh, here's some of the sound advice. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. That's like not something you probably want to encourage somebody with. Like, you're going through a hard time right now? Just curse the Lord and die. You know, oh, you're, you're struggling with cancer. Well, just curse God and die. You know, you, oh, you're having a bad time with your business. Just curse God and die. This is the kind of advice you've got in the book of Job. Okay, this is what we're dealing with. So Job is there. He's going through a hard time. He is trying to maintain his integrity. And I'll tell you, the one verse that I think saves the whole book is this one. You ready? Hold on, wrong one. I'm skipping ahead. Did I get rid of it? No, it's right here. Oh, I'm all over the place. I'm glad I'm doing my own slides today. Job 13, 15. Here's what Job says. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. You see, in the midst of all of this terrible advice for Job, Job comes out and says, you know what? God is still good. Even though I'm going through a hard time and I don't know what sense to make of it, I'm still going to put my hope in him. That's what I'm going to do. Here's what Job sees. Job understands that there's going to be something that comes next. The problem for Job's friends is they can only see this difficulty. Here's a, a truth I think we all need to wrap our minds around. It's hard to tell a great story if we remain stuck in chapter 1. This is McManus's quote. It's my favorite one in the whole book. It's hard to tell a great story if you remain stuck in chapter 1. Some of you are here today and you're stuck in chapter 1. You haven't moved out of chapter 1. Difficulties have come to you, and you have held on to those. You're still holding on to those. You've yet to let those go. And let me tell you, God wants to tell a great story with your life, but he can't do it if you stay stuck in chapter 1. So we're going to have to figure out how we move past the problems. Job's friends, all they know, it seems, are difficulties and problems. Job is convinced that there's something more. Uh, those of you that are English majors, congratulations. Um, I want to draw out the story arc for those of you that maybe aren't sure about what I'm talking about. So what you've got here is you've got the beginning. This is sort of the, the background of the text, right? You know, any story starts with like, once upon a time, there was a boy or a girl or a horse or whatever, and, you know, they lived in this valley, and, and there were these people, and this is all kind of the background information. We then move into what is called the initial incident. You can call this a problem. That's what happens right here. This is a problem. If you just read the description, you know, once upon a time there's a boy and a horse, he got up, had oatmeal, you know, went to school, came back, um, you know, played a video game, uh, you know, walked his dog, went to sleep, woke up the next morning, did the same thing. That's not a story. It's just like, a, you know, a monologue. It's running consciousness. You need a problem to tell the story. So this initial incident, this is what launches what people will call the rising action. 
This is where we start to build, and the person who is the antagonist and the protagonist, they start to you know, build up to whatever the difficulty or the problem is going to be until you get to the very pinnacle of the book, the climax. This is what's going to happen here in the story. You're going to get there to the top, and you're going to say, man, this is where it's going to change, and this is where you know, good versus evil faces off, and now all of a sudden the story starts to fall. This would be the, the, you know, the descending action. This all starts to get resolved. I like to not put it quite as low because I think they leave better than when they came, right? And then you have the resolution and they lived happily ever after, okay? That's what's happening in a story. The problem is too many people bypass this and they just stay right here. They stay right here in chapter one. Chapter one, if it's a good book, is going to get your attention right at the get-go. And it's gonna say, man, this is the problem. And a lot of people, you know, maybe this is you, maybe this is a friend, don't point. But I mean, a lot of people, they, they come to a difficulty, and it could be a big difficulty. I mean, like, this could be a real thing. But they just say, you know what, this, I'm just going to stay right here. They don't rise to meet it. They, they don't realize that there's a whole other story past chapter one. And friends, it's really hard to tell a good story if you don't move past chapter one. Orwin McManus says there's two kinds of people he finds uninteresting. I think he's on to something. The first is the person who's never known any problems. Uh, there's not a whole lot of these, but you know who I'm talking about. The people that just, they don't seem to have any problems in life. You know, things are always easy. You know, their, their latte this morning was cold. Um, but, you know, other than that, things haven't been real, real tough. But then there's the other person he finds uninteresting, and that's the person who all they've known is trouble. You know that kind of person, right? Maybe you're friends with that person where this person, you've known them for 10 years and they've had 10 jobs in that time period. They've been through five marriages in 10 years. And here's the thing about most of these people that stay stuck in chapter one is they can't see that there's another way. And almost every single time they lose a job, guess what? It's not their fault. It's somebody else's fault. The boss had it out for me. All the coworkers, man, they conspired against me. The world is against me. They're stuck here in chapter one. Same thing with their relationships. Every time they start a new one, guess what? It wasn't their fault. The other person was too needy, too clingy, you know, too aloof, too this, too that. You know, they had man hands, if you're a Seinfeld fan. I mean, you know, whatever it is, you've got all sorts of problems, but it's never theirs. They're stuck in chapter one. If you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're one of those people that's stuck in chapter one, you might just want to look back and go, man, has anything been my fault? Because if you can't find something to take ownership with, you're probably stuck in chapter one. It's, it's just reality. It's something we're going to have to deal with. We've got to face it. McManus will continue. He'll say, our experiences are not the dominant force affecting our personal happiness. It is instead our remembered self that controls how we perceive and experience life. Later, we're going to look at a text uh, that McManus writes, and I want to get this word here. He says, this is the interpretation. It is how we make sense of what has happened to us. I've got a, I've got a real clear example in my mind of, of what this looks like. You know, we had those tornadoes came through and, and uh, made a lot of phone calls, talked to a lot of people. I'm sure you've had this encounter too where you've talked to a lot of people. And one of the encounters that Jenny and I have had actually a few times is we've talked to some folks who when we first met with them or, or had a conversation with them, we said, man, how are you doing? We know you lived in that area that was really hit hard. And they're like, oh, we're fine. We're fine. Everything's good. Thanks for asking. And then we find out later that they've had to move out because, like, the entire roof of their place got, like, 
either missing or was like twisted. And now they got to all head out. And we're like, we thought you said you were fine. We thought you said you were good. And they said, you know what, listen, when we talked, I had in my mind these visions of all of these people that had been totally displaced. You know, we knew people had died. And as we looked at that experience and as we remembered it, as we interpreted it, here's what we realized. We realized that we were good, that we were good. You've talked to other folks who've been through the same kind of experience and they're not good. What's the difference? It's the same experience. It's the interpretation. It's the remembrance. Friends, what has happened to us is not as definitive as how we understand it, how we make sense of it. The good news is this, is that we can move beyond it and that we can all rewrite our stories starting today. This means you can actually go back even and rewrite the past. Not that you can change what's happened to you or what you've done, but you can change how you interpret it. You can change how you remember it. That's what Job did. Job was surrounded by people who interpreted that story with a whole mess. But what did he say? He said, you know what? Listen, my faith is still in God. I will still be able to have a fair hearing before him. McManus writes this. He says, you need to be informed by your experiences, but do not be controlled by them. What has happened to us is not nearly as powerful, as formative as our interpretation of why it has happened. The second story I want to look at this morning is not Job's story, but it's the Apostle Paul's story. The Apostle Paul, he is struck with problems. He's got a past, but he decides that he wants to move forward. He wants to take a different path. If you know the story of the Apostle Paul, he begins out as a guy by the name of Saul. He is super devout to God. Sometimes we forget this part, but he is incredibly devout to God. He loves God. He is super acquainted with the history of the Jewish people and how what has happened over the years has been a result of their faithlessness. And he is seeing this new religion, this new sect of Judaism start. We call it Christianity today. And he looked at it and he said, man, this is a problem. We've got to deal with this. We've got Jewish people leaving you know, their faith. They're leaving the synagogue. They're, they're abandoning kosher law. We've got to deal with this. And so the Apostle Paul, he goes on high alert and he takes this mission of stopping Christianity. You know, he takes it regional. He goes around, he's got letters. He is attacking Christians. He's even killing Christians. He's throwing them in prison. He is a bad guy. He's got nothing positive to say about Jesus until one day as he's on the road to Damascus, the Lord gets a hold of him. And Jesus appears to him in this blinding vision. He's blinded by the light. He's wrapped up in the truth. We just had a moment here, a little history moment here. He's wrapped up in this truth, this light. And what does he do? He, he's blinded by it. And he's got not a whole lot of places to go, but imagine the disequilibrium he has. Because Jesus has shown up, and he was thought Jesus was the enemy, and now he's blind. Now, here's what he could do. He could say, you know what? I hadn't had enough to drink that morning. I hadn't had enough to eat. It was heat stroke, or I had something funny, or, you know, whatever we had was, was, it was weird. It was messing with my mind, or I've just been out in the sun too long. He could have dismissed it. He could have explained it away. He could have said, there is no way that this is true. But the Apostle Paul goes, and he waits on the Lord because he has a sense that there's another chapter coming. He doesn't want to stay stuck in chapter 1 if it's the wrong one. So a prophet by the name of Ananias is sent to Paul. And he says to Paul, he says to Saul, his name Saul at the time, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And this is a pivotal moment for Paul's life. He moves past chapter one and he says, you know what? I'm going to see what God has to do with me. I'm going to give my life over to Jesus Christ and it changes everything. But what did he have to do first? He had to lose the scales that were in front of his eyes. He had to realize that there was something past chapter one. He had to take the blinders off and say, you know what, God is going to do something. Yes, I have made some terrible mistakes. I've even murdered somebody. I don't need a show of hands, but I suspect that that's worse than what most of you here have done today. He has murdered somebody. He's blasphemed the Lord. He has publicly persecuted Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm interested to see what chapter two is going to bring. And he moves past it. Some of you here this morning, you've got these scales on your eyes. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Today, you could do that. Like people are like, really? Like it could be, like it could happen that quick? Yeah, it, it could really happen that quick. It could happen today. Others of you, you've been a Christ follower for a long time, but you haven't moved past chapter one. Maybe you did at one point in time, but you've cycled back and you've decided that you're going to just go back there and live in chapter one. Maybe because you just know it, you're familiar with it, you think it's easier. You've got these scales on your eyes. Today's the day we're going to have to put these aside if we want to see the truth that's before us. That's how we have freedom. The truth is going to set you free if you live it out. Truth is something that we have to engage. We have to internalize. We have to allow it to change us. Let, let me get what I'm saying you know, in a less abstract way. Um, the truth that there is a flag on the moon does not change my life. For all I know, it could have been filmed in a Hollywood basement. Either one of those. We just had a Red Hot Chili Peppers moments right here. Um, some of you got that. That's awesome. Um, it could have been in the Hollywood basement. It could be on the moon. Either way, it doesn't change my life. It's not going to change how I'm going to have lunch today. It's not going to change how I uh, you know, am going to relate to my wife or parent my kids. It's not going to change my faith. That makes no difference to me. That truth could be false, and it makes no difference to me. This is why McManus is going to say this. He says, interpretation is more important than truth. Some of you are like, I don't like that statement. You're really bothered by it. I get it, but he's right. Until you've interpreted truth, internalized it, allowed it to change you, it might as well be false. You have to live out the truth before it's going to change you. This is why interpretation is more important than the truth. In preaching class, we were always told that the most important characteristic of a sermon is that it's interesting. Um, I, I just settle for having it be scattered and filled with ADD moments. Um, but it has to be interesting. Some people go, well, it has to be true. Well, yeah, it should be true, and it needs to be true, absolutely. But if it's not interesting and nobody pays attention, guess what? It doesn't matter. You could have said something false the entire time, and the effect on people's life is going to be the exact same. Interpretation matters more than truth. So you might know about Jesus. You might say that you believe in Jesus, but you have yet to internalize that. You've let to live it out. You've let to yet to turn the corner and move past chapter one. Friends, if that's you, you're not living as though Jesus was alive. Truth is a lot bigger than facts. It's a person. Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth. 
in the life. You want to know what the truth is? The truth is not a fact. It's a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. The truth is the gospel. Let me be clear what I mean by the gospel, because the word gospel is getting hijacked by a ton of people who use it to mean their entire theology. The gospel is simple. It is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. Okay, that's the gospel. If you believe that, then, then God can change your life. That's what it takes. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the truth. It will change your life now and for eternity. Jesus said this, if you hold on to my teaching, not just like if you are aware of it, but if you know it, you hold on to it, you live it out, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's how you know that you're living in freedom. When you're living your life as though Christ was resurrected, as though you really believed it, as though the cross made sense of your life, as though your life had to be interpreted through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the Apostle Paul. He looked back on his life, and he could have said, man, I've done some terrible things. I've killed people. I've gone after Jesus. I've blasphemed his name. I've done some horrific things. He could be living in a prison of shame and guilt, but here's what he says. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, when Paul looked back on his life, he didn't see sin. He saw grace. He saw Jesus. There's a church in Chicago that has these baptism shirts like we do. They're black, and, but they have a different phrase on theirs. Theirs don't say forgiven, set free. There says, Southside Hope Dealer. That's funny. There's a lot of other kinds of dealers in the south side of Chicago. And some of those people used to be those kinds of people. But when they've given their life to Jesus Christ, it all gets rewritten. And they become a dealer of hope. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, then that also is your job. The elders have yet to approve my Hope Dealer shirts for the baptistry. We're working on it. Friends, that's your job. You should be inviting people to come to know the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Last quote here from McManus. A significant part of the artist's challenge is to go beyond interpreting human experience to be an interpreter of human possibility. If you're in Jesus Christ, your life should inspire hope in other people. Other people should look at your life and go, man, if God could use you, <laughs> he could definitely use me. If God has done something in your life, he could do something in my life. That's what should be happening. Friends, we've got to live our lives this way. All right, I, I want to give you three things that you can do as we wrap this whole thing up. Now, we're pushing this out on social media we're calling it one leg at a time because some of these practices are, you know, they're a little uncomfortable. We get that. A spiritual discipline, it's like a pair of pants. You know, you got to put it on one leg at a time. You don't just jump into it and it's, you know, it doesn't work like that. You got to try it on one leg at a time, walk around in it a little bit, and then you'll find that it fits comfortably. So here's three things you can do. We'll push this out on our social channels, but I'm just telling you, tell them to you right now. First is this, make a list of the bad in your life and the good in your life. Make a list. Just go ahead and like, bad, good. Just write it all out. And then ask yourself two questions. 
which was easier to write? Like, which one just flowed super fast for you? And then as you look at it, also ask yourself, which was easier to write? So which was the longer list? Which was the easiest list to come up with? That'll probably tell you something about yourself. That'll probably reveal to you a little bit about how you view things and how you're naturally wired. Second thing you're going to do is you're going to input some scripture. You're going to do Romans 8.28. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I want to pause because that verse does not say that God has done all things to you. You need to hear that. Like some of you have been through some horrific things. God didn't do that to you. James tells us that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So if you got a good gift, that came from God. If you got a bad gift, it didn't come from him, okay? That's just how it is. But Romans tells us that even the bad gifts, God can use for good. Like, like a mosaic is made up of shattered pieces of glass. God can take the broken pieces of your life and put them together into something beautiful, okay? That's what Romans tells us God can do and is doing for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. You know, Christianity doesn't really offer a whole lot of great explanations for bad, why bad things happen to good people. Yes, I think free will plays a part. We know sin is in there for sure. But I love how Frederick Buechner says this. He says, Christianity offers really no solution except to point to the cross and say there's no evil so dark, not even this, that God can't work for good. And so some of you, that's your life story You've been through some really bad things, and we could sit down and we could talk, and I won't be able to tell you why that happened. But I can tell you that you don't have to stay stuck there in chapter 1. Again, Mike Foster says, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. If you want to move past chapter 1, you've got to decide to do it. Third thing you're going to do is you're going to take some time to write down everything you've learned and gained from failures, setbacks, and pain. Go ahead, write that down. So list good and bad, memorize Romans 8, 28, and then once you've got that in your mind, look back on your life and say, man, what are the good things that God has brought through the bad things? And I think if you do that, you will see God's hand at work in places and in ways that you didn't even expect to see him. I want to pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this text, um, for McManus's writings. God, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you for the witness of Paul's life. God, for the way that you redeemed him and used him. God, this morning, I am so confident that you want to do that same thing in our lives today. That there's some people here this morning, God, that are still stuck in chapter one. And God, they really need to move out of that. You want them to. You want to give them the strength to do that. And so, Lord, would you speak to their hearts right now? Give them some courage. Give them some boldness, God, to take that step out of chapter one into chapter two. It, it'll probably get more difficult. It'll probably be harder. But on the other side, and even in that first step, you're waiting and you're ready to take them through it. So God, we ask that you do that. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, this morning... Um, if, if this morning you're thinking, man, I want to pray with somebody, you could grab the person that brought you to church. They'd love to pray with you. Uh, I'll be up here. I'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Um, you don't have to leave today in chapter one. You can move out of that. God wants to help you.
you know, one of the things we do here is we like to leave the baptistry open. You can come up, put your hands in there and kind of remind yourself that in Christ, chapter one's been washed away and there's something new waiting for you. It's waiting for you, friends. Let's stand. Let's sing.